0: Hello and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Roxanne Escobalis, the editor of the World Today magazine, and I'm sitting in for Bronwyn as she rubs shoulders with the bold and the beautiful at the World Economic Forum in Davos. She'll be back next week. But for now, on the podcast this week, we'll be diving into the Red Sea, or more like the trouble that has been brewing on and around its waters. We're taping this on Thursday morning, and overnight, the U.S. has led its fourth strike against the Houthi forces in Yemen. The Houthis, you'll have heard, have been targeting ships in the Red Sea and disrupting global shipping routes. We'll hear more about what's going on and what it means for the wider Middle East region. To do that, joining me in the studio on this very cold winter's morning in London are three guests. We have Tom Sharp. Tom's a former commander in the Royal Navy. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Uh, You now write
1: for the Telegraph newspaper, don't you? I do, and I've been uh, writing steadily for them for the last six months, increasingly on the Red Sea, of course.
0: Yeah, give us a flavour of some of the recent stories you've been working on.
1: Before before the 26th of October, when the Houthis re-announced themselves in the Red Sea, I was a steady sort of circulation between South China Sea, uh, the Black Sea, of course, North Atlantic, and the counter-Russian activity there. So it was a kind of nice little rotation. But since, since the Red Sea erupted I- I- at the back end of October, I've been writing pretty consistently about um, what's going on there.
0: Fantastic. We'll have to have you back to talk to us about uh, the South China Sea. Also, what you, your time in the navy? What ships did you command?
1: I was lucky. I had a, a good run of it. I, I commanded four. Um, one was on fishery protection, so no no guns at all. Uh, one was in Northern Ireland. That was quite uh, quite tense, sort of counterterrorism operations. Then I drove our icebreaker down in Antarctica, um, which was a, a bit of a life experience. And my final sea command was in a in a frigate, where I spent a year in the in the Persian Gulf. Uh, where I was an anti-submarine commander for two U.S. carrier strike groups. So spent a lot of time in the sort of area we're talking about today. Uh, And then my final year in command was in the North Atlantic. Uh, We were the on-call patrol ship to go and intercept um, Russian submarines. So never a dull day.
0: Well, thanks. I'm looking forward to hearing your take on what's happening uh, militarily in the Red Sea. We also have
1: Sanem Vakil. Sanem,
0: she's the director of our Middle East and North Africa program here at Chatham House. Sanem, Hello. Hi, good morning. You've been a very busy woman since October. It has been quite full on. Tell us what you've been doing.
2: Well, uh, in addition to running a a large program here at Chatham House and working on ongoing research projects on regional security, uh, Gulf geopolitics and Iran, uh, we are trying to cover uh, the uh, war in Gaza and uh, bring attention to the humanitarian issues there, but also the broader regional security challenges at bay.
0: And you've been doing a lot of media hits as well.
2: Yes, indeed, indeed.
0: So I feel very lucky to get a little bit of your time so you can join us here uh, in the studio in Chatham House. And making up the trio in the studio today is Faria al-Muslimi. Faria is a Yemen specialist who works with Sanam on her team. Faria, hi.
3: Welcome and very good morning to you.
0: I understand you had a moment in parliament this week.
3: For the very wrong reasons. What happened? The United Kingdom started uh, to bomb the Houthis uh, for the first time, getting involved in... Uh, military air strikes in coordination with the United States. So, obviously, Yemen is becoming a more uh, on the cycle of policymakers in London and Washington uh, due to the more involvement recently by the two countries in Yemen's war.
0: And what does that have to do with you in Parliament?
3: Uh, the Prime Minister uh, was uh, questioned about obviously the UK intervention and strikes in Yemen, and he quote uh, a, a Parliament uh, or a member of Parliament quoted one of the articles. I published at Chatham House, in which uh, basically, um, very eloquently saying why this is a bad idea.
0: So not quite your 15 minutes, maybe just
3: about 30 seconds of fame? Yes, yes, yes. And again, for the very wrong reasons, unfortunately.
0: Well, so this moment in Parliament um, is actually, uh, there's a lot of background to that. So why don't you do some scene setting for us and explain what's happening uh, in the Red Sea with Yemen and the Houthis?
3: So let me start with the Houthis, which is a Yemeni group that has launched the first war in Yemen against the central government in 2004. Um, it's an armed rebel Zaidi group, which is um, a mild version of the Shia Twelverism, but more of a only and mainly rooted in Yemen. And in the rise to their power is a combination of both goals and tools that combine FARC, Taliban and Hezbollah. Um, like FARC in Colombia, they came to power after the political order and political parties dissolved in the Republic of Yemen. It was a main factor in that. And like Hezbollah, at one point, they got a lot of help from Iran. And they positioned themselves at the Red Sea as the axis of resistance. Um, and like Taliban, they adopt an extremely radical social and religious view of Islam. But overall, in uh, they, they are more of the Shia Taliban in in many ways. In 2014, they had their 15 months to power in which they took over Sana'a by uh, force, forcing the internationally recognized government out of it. In March 2015, Saudi Arabia, along with 12 countries supported by the United Kingdom and United States and many Western countries, decided to throw all books history away and go into a bombing Yemen, you know, not learning from the Ottomans or the Egyptians. Very ill-fought military operation, in my opinion. Nine years later, the Houthis didn't lose. So you have a group that also has felt that, you know, it was an armed group in the mountain in 2004. Then it defeated the uh, Saudis for eight years, or it feels like that. And recently it became a global player in arms, specifically in the Red Sea.
0: So what are they doing now in the Red Sea? Why are they active now?
3: Uh, They always have built a strong military uh, maritime seas. We just haven't been able to see that the last five years, or at least to experience it. Since the war in Gaza erupted, they have found it an opportunity to position themselves as a global player. Part of it, they believe in it, and part of it is opportunistic. Um, So they started erupted international trades attacking U.S. troops until and uh, obviously a British ships in the sea. And recently they have erupted a, quite a good number of world trade in one of the busiest areas in the world.
0: So you bring up a good point. I want to go to Tom on this, on the international
1: trade and shipping routes, Tom. What's been happening? There's been a lot of disruption. There has, right from the first attack on the 26th of October, when, when they first fired up the Red Sea and, and it was intercepted by the USS Carney. That was the moment where the Houthis sort of re-emerged into this, into this discussion with, with force. And since then... Shipping companies have been have been wobbling, and I and I think it's important to note this is the the end state from the UK perspective. in all of this is to is to reestablish freedom of navigation, and in order to do that, we have to reassure shipping to a point. Now, to what point is there is a real conundrum? It'll never be to one hundred percent, but we need to reassure the shipping companies. And at the moment, since the twenty sixth of October, but in, but escalating quite quickly, these companies have been electing to not to not run the gauntlet, to not go through. So first to fall off with a major uh, container ships, because they're the most valuable. They're the ones who inevitably have to pay the most in insurance when this sort of thing starts happening.
0: I knew there was a problem when Maersk said they were changing their route to go down to the
1: Cape. In, go around the Africa. Cape. I mean, Maersk inevitably led the comms charge on this. They they, they are very forward-leaning, but there were a few others, Hapad Lloyd, CMA, CGM, MSC, et cetera. So, you know, and now we're at a state where 90% of those um, ships are not going through; they're going the long way around, and that adds time, delays, and and cost, all of which ultimately will be felt in in someone's pockets, including ours. So that's just container ships. Uh, oil, of course, is is fundamental to this. BP wobbled very early. Shell two days ago said they're not going through, so they're down about thirty percent, but that's creeping up, and we we I think we can probably expect that to increase to about fifty percent, electing to not go through in the next. Few weeks.
0: So, this is the rationale for military strikes. Talk us through what's been happening with that.
1: In order to restore freedom of navigation, if we go back to our end state here, the Houthis have to stop firing. That's the only way we can restore freedom of navigation. Now, in my view, there are three ways the Houthis can stop firing, and and we can unpack this perhaps later. But the first one is they elect to stop, and we could have a conversation about why that may or may not happen. Second is that they're persuaded to stop by someone else, let's just say Iran for now. And the third one is that they're, they're made to stop. And in my view, the solution has always been the one in the middle. It's always a political solution that lies inland. Uh, but the status quo wasn't working. The defensive posture of the military there wasn't working. The ships were routinely getting fired at. And so the shipping liners were continuing to go around. So something had to change. And I think that's what we're seeing now. So Asana,
0: Tom mentioned that the Houthis may possibly be persuaded to stop by Iran. What are the wider uh, regional implications here? Um, we've heard from Feria that Iran and Saudi Arabia were sort of backing um, opposite sides in Yemen. So now we're seeing this as a retaliation of sorts for the Israeli action in Gaza. But are, is this a, uh, at risk of wider escalation?
2: Well, it's a, a really complex picture. So. In short, yes. (laughs) We have been on sort of escalating line since October 7th. And while we are not yet (laughs) at a a full-scale war, you know, every day, every week, um, it is looking more perilous. The reality is that for a number of decades now, Iran has uh, developed a network that is known as the Axis of Resistance. The groups from Hezbollah to Hamas to the Houthis to hybrid actors in Iraq and, and also Syria come together in a sort of ideological affinity against Israel's posture in the Middle East, against the United States in the region, and Iran has provided material as well as financial support for these groups. The groups are not all equal. They don't share the same position in the domestic context. And Iran does not have command and control over these groups. But uh, this is the first time that we are seeing the axis of resistance um, operate together. And the model has somewhat shifted over the past few years. The axis of resistance is trying to keep the pressure on Israel, uh, trying to bring about a ceasefire in Gaza, showcase that they are relevant, showcase that they have influence, maybe compared to other Arab states that don't and aren't able to bring about a ceasefire. They also want to preserve the axis of resistance in this fight against Israel. So they're not all piling into the conflict at the same time. You will see that There's pressure in Lebanon or tensions in Lebanon and then those go down and then there's pressure in Iraq and then that comes down. And right now, the way the coordination is is being operationalized is that Yemen is actually seen, I think, by Iran and of course by the Houthis themselves as a place where the risk of escalation is worth the gamble. Because the Houthis are in a strong position domestically, and being able to showcase their destabilizing capacity on the Bab mandeb in the Red Sea, you know, is really uh, actually an achievement for the axis of resistance.
0: Faria, coming to you, uh, the Houthis now have actually got global attention, and they've got response from the largest military power in the world, the U.S. But the U.S. has also responded yesterday, I believe, with some sanctions. Is that
3: right? Yes, and like the airstrikes, I am not sure that will actually deter the Houthis. Um, Neither the designation of them as a foreign terrorist group, nor actually an airstrike uh, on Yemen. And I think, uh, as Tom was saying, that the third choice or his third uh, possibility would not work, which is someone to mate them. I think that's a matter of of reality in Yemen, where force does not really make a difference. Um, At least not in the way it brutally with does um, everywhere or somewhere else. Will the U.S. change the Houthis' behavior within a matter of designating them as a foreign terrorist? I think it, the answer is a bloody no. And I think there is a lot of a problem with uh, the recent uh, designation by uh, the Biden administration. The number one is it comes while the Houthis are in a war with Israel. So it looks like yet another U.S. uh, uh, pretty bloody protection of Israel that has nothing to do with anything else. So it will not be cooperated with. Second, the Houthis, yes, by now have a little bit of finance outside Yemen, but it's mostly in Dubai and Istanbul and somewhere will not be affected by sanctioning in the typical financial system. And third, because it is a typical common trend of inconsistency within the U.S. administration toward Yemen. Sanctions is a bullet, and when you lose, when you shoot it, you lose the ability to threaten with it. So, Trump has designated the Houthis, Biden overruled it, and now Biden is in even more a clumsy way redesignating them. So, you have the first issue, which is inconsistency in all of the cases, and then you have the second issue, which is you shot the bullet with no implementing mechanism, and, and it's very uh, difficult in that regard. So, I think that unfortunately. The main complication this will do is to the UN-led peace process. Imagine right now the UN envoy who was on the edge of signing a peace deal on Yemen a few weeks ago, actually, is now basically having to deal with the terrorist group. All of the U.S. bureaucracies and just his staff. Imagine Saudi Arabia said to the Houthis, "Okay, we will have a peace deal with you, and we will pay the terrorists. We will pay you the salaries." Now what? Saudi Arabia will wire uh, salaries to a terrorist group designated by its biggest Western ally. So in any ways, uh, I think it will make everyone's uh, life even worse and more complicated than it already is.
1: I think when you when you just said then about firing a bullet, you then kind of walk, can't walk back from. We got ourselves into a similar situation as we approached the strikes, with increased warnings to the point where you now have to do something. You know, you've you've put a red line in the in the sand, uh, and it's been crossed. So now you. We, we did oblige ourselves to to strike. And the point I was going to make on the strikes really, and it's, it's always as the military guy sort of breathlessly talking about strike options, easy f- for people to default to, so that's what you want. I hope I've made it clear that's not what I want. And it's not the solution. It won't deter and it certainly won't defeat. Uh, I think we can say with a degree of certainty, but it will degrade. And that was the purpose of the military strikes was to degrade key parts of the Houthi capability. And I think, I think they've done that to an extent by taking out radar sites and uh, and various HQs and runways. So there's a they've degraded their will to fight a bit. Now I know with the Houthis that's a broad church, but they couldn't just let them carry on firing with impunity. And I, I I do agree with that. Something had to be done. We backed ourselves into a corner where something had to be done, but it was it was the right decision, but not but only a very small part of the solution.
0: How sustainable are these strikes?
1: Well, I think what we're seeing now, which again, I think most sort of military planners predicted was a was a one-out, one-in philosophy. Now, I still think there'll be, a, there'll be a spectacular at some point. I think the Houthis will want to gather what they've got and, and go large again. That's my take. I hope I'm wrong. And every day that goes past, that likelihood decreases. So hopefully I'm wrong. But I, I suspect we'll see a large attack at some point. But in the meantime, as you say, we've had the four strikes since the big one. And that is a one out, one in, and of course that's key because that's now self defence. So in terms of international legitimacy and 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 defending your aggressive actions, you can call that self defence, rightly or wrongly. You can say, well, they fired at us, so we shot that launcher or we shot that radar site, and and I think that'll go on. Well, it'll go on until they stop, until they stop firing, and then we come back to my original point.
3: And I think it's just to add to Tom's point. I think the Houthis are more reckless than anyone imagines. So they will fire back and even more brutally on civilian structures and economic structures. And I think one sin everyone has been practicing for the last 20 years is underestimating the Houthis. And as Sanam said earlier, for Iran, it is actually the simplest way right now. They wish that the Houthis go into a full scale war compared, for example, to Hezbollah. That's still the easiest way they can do it. But we have not seen their maritime capabilities yet. I continue to warn against that. And I think even if what we have seen is a little bit of what the guys have, the group.
1: Just very quickly on Iran, and, and, and not to jump in too much, but I I definitely heard at one point the Eisenhower, the, the US nuclear aircraft carrier there, was rotating its aircraft. In other words, its, its air wing was kind of leaving and the new air wing, air wing was coming in. This is 60-odd you know, 60, 60 jets. So there was a double whammy of of these jet, jets in the region, and those that monitor these things noticed a a discernible step back from Iran in the conversations whilst that was going on. So that suggests to me that that Iran at least is susceptible to deterrence, and therefore I would I would suspect not so keen on on letting the Houthis off the, off the leash, but.
2: Well, I think that Iran, again, everyone thinks that Iran should have mobilized. Or there's been a lot of discussion as to why Iran hasn't mobilized for Hamas or for Hezbollah or operationalized. And Iran has not militarily mobilized since 1988. It supported And and it did deploy the IRGC against the fight um, against ISIS in 2014 in Iraq. But Iran has, through uh, and since October 7th, put down its very clear red lines, and particularly over the past few days. And that's the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Iran above all. And that's when Iran um, deploys force protection in the region. And we've seen that because it struck in response to terrorist attacks in Iran on, on January 3rd. It struck... Pakistan, uh, Syria, and Iraq. And, And that was, of course, striking, and we can talk about that later. But that tells us that Iran's number one priority is and has always been and will always be Iran. And in allowing, let's say, uh, the Houthis to showcase their own agency. And of course, uh, behind the scenes, certainly Iran, has Hamas, they're all playing a role um, supporting propaganda, supporting maybe operational activities in Yemen. But they want to show that the axis is also, it works together, but it's also a domestic force. I think Iran is at the same time wanting to be a diplomatic player in in this conflict, Um, not just by pivoting uh, to Gaza and Israel, but also um, showcasing that it can maintain its relationship with Saudi Arabia simultaneously. You know, both foreign ministers, Faisal bin Farhan and uh, Amir Abdelian, just met together in Davos, and there was a big fanfare of photographs showcasing that the relationship is surviving this tension on the Red Sea. And so Iran uh, would like to show the Saudis that, you know, we can walk into Chugam, we can try to talk to our Houthis, Partners, um, but we can't really, uh, you know, control those guys either. So they're playing a double game, and it's quite dangerous.
0: Uh, well, also, we woke up to Pakistan retaliating against Iran. Uh, Iran strikes within its borders. W- what happened there?
2: Well, I think forty-eight hours ago, it looked much more dangerous than it was. I mean, we have not seen again Iran take action like that since two, 2020, when Iran attacked U.S. bases in Iraq directly in response to the killing of the former IRGC commander, Qassem Soleimani, by the United States on January 3rd, 2020. So on January 3rd of this year, uh, there was a terrorist attack in Kerman in Iran, believed to be uh, attributed to ISIS. And, and um, over 80 Iranians were killed. And this was the largest terrorist attack seen inside the country. And Iran decided, because of domestic pressure, but again, because I think it felt the need to make its red lines abundantly clear, to strike back against ISIS, but ISIS not just in Syria, which is uh, one of the areas where it struck, in Pakistan, um, against Jaish al Adl, uh, a longtime sort of terrorist group in the sort of uh, more lawless area of uh, southeastern Iran, but also in Erbil in Iraq. And this three in one. I think, is making it clear to the Israelis that you know if there is going to be a broader conflict with Iran, Iran will respond going forward. Again, sovereignty um, is important. It's also making it clear to terrorist groups that sort of non-state activity inside Iran is also a red line. It's showcasing its missile capabilities. And over the past few years, we have seen Iran sort of come out of uh, the shadows and share its drone and missile capability, something it's been doing for a while, but using its drone and missile capability. And, you know, this was quite a show uh, when it attacked the Saudi oil facilities in uh, 2019. Um, And since then, Iran is using that sort of visibility to remind people that, you know, despite containment, despite sanctions, despite every effort to contain the Islamic Republic of Iran, it continues to be there, um, you know, destabilizing, predatory, but it's still there and you kind of can't take it down.
0: So we're hearing from Sanam, the double game that Iran's playing, how much control does it have over the Houthis?
3: The way I currently, this doesn't mean it was the case in the past, but the way I currently imagine the axis of resistance is is like a WhatsApp group that Iran set. It's still the only admin in the group, sure, but it is (laughs) one, and it's not usually active, but sometimes you would see Yemen very active, and maybe you would see Iran last seen 20 hours ago. Sometimes you would see Hezbollah do something, and you would see thumbs up from Iran, thumbs up down. It's really like that. If if we over probably risk of oversimplifying it, so there is a coordination, it's in control, but you know it lets everyone. Sometimes it shares a link, sometimes a photo, sometimes a video. But that everyone can do that and everyone can talk to everyone privately also. Everyone. I love
0: the WhatsApp analogy. I also like to think maybe Iran has the delete messages after seven it hours. It does, it
3: does. It still have that. The main difference I think right now is Salam was also saying in Pakistan is I unfortunately think we are in a full war in the region. We're just not calling it that. The United States, the United Kingdom is in a war in Yemen, in a war in various areas. Sudan is an internal war. Saudi Arabia is still theoretically in war in Yemen, even if a truce. Lebanon is in a war. Palestine is in a war. We just are not calling it that. And the West is in a full-scale war in the Middle East, and so is Iran today with Pakistan. And I think it's almost a state of nature, according to Thomas Hobbes, but we're not calling it that, unfortunately.
1: Just on the WhatsApp group, great analogy. Uh, uh, where are Russia and China in this WhatsApp group? Are they are they stalking or are they contributing?
3: I think they are sometimes Iran lets them read and sometimes they hack the group. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Just back on uh, Farah's point on Pakistan and Iran, I actually don't think that um, the temperature is going to rise there because if you look at the strikes and if you look at the response over the past 48 hours, Iran struck Iranian threatening groups in Pakistan and the Pakistanis did the exact same thing. They struck Pakistani terror groups in Iran. And yes, there was a the d- diplomatic kerfuffle and, and uh, lots of tensions, but uh, the like for like response really speaks that they're both just looking to climb down. And I think that that's, that, that will resolve itself with some diplomacy, with some harsh words. But everyone is sort of ticked the box on reminding groups like Daesh, ISIS, don't take advantage of this moment in the region.
0: So we heard some pretty strong declarations, your assessment of what's happening in the region very uh that there's full-scale war going on. I would like, um, as we wrap things up, to just hear from each of you, if you agree with that assessment and what what events will you be looking out for? What triggers and bar- barometer readings are you looking for um, that will either escalate or diffuse the
1: conflicts that we're seeing play out in, in the wider region and also within the Red Sea? Tom? To, to me, the, the only barometer that matters here, if you really simplify it down, is is the restoration of freedom of navigation. And, and shipping companies' willingness to run through the Babel Mendeb and, and the Suez Canal. It, that, that, to me, is, is what defines success or otherwise. Everything around that is just how we get, get to that end state. So, you know, I will certainly be looking for the for the spectacular from the Houthis. I, I still think we're probably owed one of those. And I think Western militaries convening around the U.S. and Operation Prosperity Guardian uh, will be there for some time. So we're in a sustainability slog now. And I suppose my, perhaps my final point is, is that in all these attacks, I mean, there have been 125 separate missile and drone firings in various groupings. Some of them have hit, in fact, eight have hit their targets. There was a chemical tanker that caught fire about six weeks ago, and they managed to c- contain the fire. We've been lucky so far that there hasn't been a huge miscalculation. There's no such thing as a probability of kill of 100% in fact at the moment the coalition strike rate across all those 125 attacks is 75% and that's that's good so sooner or later this is why something had to be done if the houthis keep firing sooner or later they're going to they're going to cause a massive pollution incident uh, the death of civilian commercial sailors or they'll hit a us warship or a british warship or any of the other eight countries that are there and we're forced into a different set of uh, set of reactions. so those are the things i think we need to to keep an eye out and don't forget that the reason they haven't done this so far is as much to do with luck as it is with the skill of the coalition.
2: There's so much to look out for. But in it, I mean, I fully agree with everything that uh, Tom has said. I'll add to that. I'll be looking for a uh, ratcheting up of tensions outside of the Red Sea. I think uh, looking at the Lebanese-Israeli border is is a, a really key flashpoint. Uh, tensions have calm down. Um, but the question is, are the Israelis that have different priorities looking to reinforce their own deterrence after uh, October 7th, if they're going to try and um, push Hezbollah further back? And, and you know what might that result in? It could be uh, more than um, we're anticipating or hoping for. And how, if at all, uh, the Biden administration is going to manage all of this. They've tried through the attacks in the Red Sea, but also their presence across the region to manage and and enforce deterrence, uh, but also trying to be diplomatic. The war in Gaza very much (laughs) is the connectivity and the thread through all of this. I'm not suggesting that ending that war or bringing a ceasefire is necessarily going to calm everything down. Definitely not immediately. But that war is urgently escalating. The death toll, the humanitarian challenges, the famine that is there that nobody is talking about, is a huge and long-term crisis. And what we've learned since October 7th is not only are there too many fragile conflicts in the region that require diplomacy and international investment, but we've learned that regional security in the Middle East is deeply interconnected and that you cannot segregate one conflict or marginalize the issue of the Palestinians and still build regional security without it.
0: Yeah, you mentioned the humanitarian crisis unfolding uh, in Gaza uh, and Palestinian lands. That should be perhaps a topic for a whole topic for a, a, a podcast. Um, hopefully that will be tackled in future. But uh, before then, Faria, your final words on what you'll be looking for on the horizon to either tr- you know signal escalation or... I opposite. really
3: cannot emphasize enough what Sanam said. And I think even in a more, more feeling about what I think Gaza is the key the escalation in the Middle East. As long as we continue to see that war happening, we cannot even deal with the Houthis. Most of Yemenis are suffering from these strikes on the Red Sea, by the way. It's going to make the Yemen humanitarian situation, which is already bloody hell, much more worse. But who, and this and optics matter in the Middle East more than anyone can imagine, but who would stand up for the Houthis while they're standing up for Israel? No one can right now. It just looks too wrong, no matter what the goals of it in any regards. And the other thing that I think will change it from an international perspective is consistency. The UK, the US, the West have not been consistent toward the whole region or in the region for decades. If you want to save a trade, you know, you cannot possibly care more about the drop of an oil, a drop in the Red Sea, while seeing a river of bloods in the Middle East for years. And then this is the second part hits you more and the first one doesn't hit you. It's actually a problem, I think. And I think that is a diplomatic optics, but it's also a consistency that we have seen um, in a various level that has also veiled more since October 7. And I think, uh, again, Gaza is the key, really, into many things that are in the region.
0: Well, those are very stark images uh, for very critical times that we're facing. So we'll leave it uh, here for now. But before we go, a big thank you to my guests, Tom Sharp, Sanam Vakil and Faria al Mislimi. Do you follow them all on the social media channel formerly known as Twitter. We're still not calling it X. Uh, The links will be in the show notes. And we just want to flag that next week on January 23rd, Bronwyn Maddox will be giving her second annual director's lecture. She'll be looking at some of the many challenges facing the world and what that means for world leaders. She'll also be providing some ideas for solutions. You can find more information, including how to register for the event, on our website. And a reminder that you can find all of Chatham House's podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all major podcast platforms, as well as through our social media channels. So do like, follow and subscribe and leave us a review if you feel so inclined to read more from our experts or to find out more about our events. And don't forget to visit our website, ChathamHouse.org, where you can follow the work of all of our programs, including our Middle East and North Africa program. You can also read The World Today, which is the international affairs magazine from Chatham House, at www.theworldtoday.org. That's it from me. I'm Roxanne Escobales. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.